Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at commonwealthclub.org. Systems Program, a university fellow in undergraduate education, director of the Stanford University Stable Isotope Lab, and a senior fellow at both the Spogli Institute for International Studies and the Woods Institute for the Environment. Professor Dunbar's research and teaching interests include climate dynamics, oceanography, marine ecology, and biogeochemistry. He is also interested in environmental policy directed towards problem solving. His research group studies global environmental change with a focus on air-sea interactions, tropical marine ecosystems, polar climate, and biogeochemistry. His group specializes in high-resolution studies of climatic and oceanic variability during modern times, as well as over the past 50 to 12,000 years. Their most productive archives for this work include the skeletons of long-lived corals from the tropics and the deep sea, as well as sediments from lakes and marine environments. He uses chemical, isotopic, and morphological measurements of these materials to investigate past climate variability. Current field areas include the Galapagos Islands, Antarctica, the Line Islands, Kenya, Easter Island, Chile, Patagonian Argentina, Tierra del Fuego, and Palau. Too bad you never get out of the office. <laughs> Among other approaches, Professor Dunbar's group is using deep-sea research submersibles in a multi-year effort to collect deep-sea corals, as mentioned, to better understand their ecology as well as their self-contained records of change. Also of note are several projects in Antarctica to assess the impacts of climate change on southern ocean ecosystems and carbon system chemistry. Also in collaboration with the Center for Marine Studies at the University of Queensland in Australia, they are instrumenting a reef system at Heron Island to measure carbon system transformations. Professor Dunmar received his Bachelor of Science in Geology at the University of Texas at Austin and his Ph.D. in Oceanography at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at UC San Diego. 
Prior to coming to Stanford, he worked at Rice University, the National Geophysical Data Center, Victoria University of Wellington, New Zealand, the University of New Mexico, and the University of California at San Diego. In addition to studying the Earth, he appreciates its beauty and is an avid nature photographer. Today, he sheds light on the controversy surrounding the global warming crisis. Please welcome Professor Rob Dunbar. Thanks, Charmaine. And uh, thanks to all of you guys for coming out today to hear something about climatic change. You know, it's, um, I thought, oh my God, everybody's so focused on the presidential election and the debates and, you know, the economy. Nobody's going to show up, right? <laughs> but here you are. And one of the things that I'll, I'll um, talk about today, actually, is the link between the economy and uh, global climate change. And it's kind of, a, it can go two ways, right? You know, we can look at the opportunities that the climate system provides us for um, kind of innovative uh, technologies and new markets, or we can wait and, and not act soon enough in some key areas and, and face some pretty serious economic threats that would make what's happened in the last two months look like absolutely nothing. So I'll make a few points along those lines as we go. Um, before we get started, that's my website at, at Stanford, and, and what I always do when I give presentations like this is I'll, I'll put these visuals up on the website, and um, they'll be there as a PowerPoint file. Just go there, and there'll be a pointer to the Commonwealth Club presentation. And you can download that um, and use it as you see fit, share it with friends, or use it for talks that you guys may give as well. And uh, also, I, I'm an avid correspondent with folks. Um, I spend about an hour a day emailing people that have climate questions. So you know, don't hesitate to get in touch with me. Um, I'm happy to engage you guys. Uh, I'll stick around after the presentation today and talk a little bit as well. But as the beginning, I, I thought I'd show you uh, the background photo here. It's one of my favorite places in the Antarctic. Uh, I've spent over seven years of my life in Antarctica, in and around Antarctica. I've been going there for 30 years now, studying climate change. And this is Deception Island. Maybe some of you guys have been there. It's a black sand beach. The sand comes from a, an active volcano. And these sea cliffs here, they look like sea cliffs, but they're not. That's ice. That's glacial ice. And it's covered with sediment. What's happening here is that as that ice is melting back, it's a huge glacier falling into the sea. As the glacial ice is melting and the water flows away, what's left behind is you know, the uh, bits and pieces of volcanic eruptions that have occurred over the last many thousands of years. Right? It, it's left behind as this kind of lag deposit once the water melts. And so I come here every two years, and I've been doing so for almost 30 years. And, and each time I show up there, it looks completely different. It's an area in rapid retreat. And this is continental ice, right? Uh, we're, we have some pretty nifty tools up our sleeves, ways to study you know, the extent of these glaciers in the past. And what we know is that in the Antarctic Peninsula, these islands out here like Deception Island... You know, the ice has retreated further back now than at any other time in at least 10,000 years, probably in over 120,000 years, right? And, and that's based on studies from at least 30 sites. Now, this is continental ice. When it melts, it goes into the ocean and causes sea level to rise. So I'll come back to sea level rise in a moment as well. Uh, it's an important area ecologically. There's lots of penguins. This is now down in the Weddell Sea. Paulette Island has the the largest colony of Adelaide penguins in the world. There's almost a million birds that live here in one small island. 
you know, these birds uh, have enormous energy demands, right? They're very active. They have to be able to keep going in this really cold environment. Uh, and the density of life there is truly phenomenal. So they have to eat a lot. And there's millions of birds, so they eat a lot of food, a lot of plankton in the sea. And one of the things that's been happening there, what's accompanying global warming, is a change in the productivity of the ocean, and it's actually causing tremendous changes in the standing stocks of penguins and their breeding success rates in the places where they can have uh, colonies. So, you know, we observe it today, and it's certainly been going on for at least 25 years now. So it's not just all about sea level rise and temperature change. There's significant ecological impacts as well. Okay, so a little bit more introduction here. I'm a climate scientist. Uh, I work at the intersection of biology, chemistry, and and geology, and physics. Um, I use oceanic materials, corals, um, sediment cores. Sometimes I work in ice cores as well uh, to study climate change through time. And and each one of these gray circles, that's a place where my group's worked and published. We have peer-reviewed papers out on climate change over the last you know, a few thousands of years to maybe 10,000 years. And I've taken students with me uh, from either Rice or Stanford to about 95% of these sites. And they actually participate in a real way in the research and in the publication. Now, at first, you might look at that and think, oh, this guy likes to travel, you know. <laughs> and I, to be honest, I mean, I was faced with this decision as an undergraduate student. You know, at first I was a petroleum engineer. My dad was a petroleum engineer. And I took all these engineering classes, and it was fun, you know. But then I, as an elective, I, went, I took a geology class, and we went on this field trip into the hill country of central Texas. And I thought, that's it. i got to get a job where I can work outside, you know. And as a petroleum engineer, there aren't that many opportunities. So I switched, and I do like to travel. But I'm sure I can convince you that, you know, these are coordinated arrays. These sites were selected for very specific reasons. And the, reason, the main reason is this. Uh, This map here is sea surface temperature. The red shows the warmest parts of the planet. The blue, the coldest parts of the planet. The temperature change between the warmest water and the coldest water is about 30 degrees centigrade. Now, that difference in temperature controls more than anything else all circulation on the planet, right? The storms, where they are and how strong they are, the major currents in the ocean, the major flow of the atmosphere, the major wind belts, it's controlled by this gradient between the warmest parts and the coldest parts. And as climate changes, this warm area kind of beats like a heart. It it expands, it contracts, it expands, it contracts. That's one of the fundamental features of climate change. So one one of the things that my group's been doing when we have a transect of sites like this, we're trying to establish the full range of temperatures across this entire warm water region, larger than all of North America, and how that's changed over periods of years to decades to centuries. You know, and we've been doing that for a long time. I mean, that's why I can say we know what's natural on the planet, and that's how we have information that lets us say something different's going on right now that's not natural, and we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, I, as I said, I take students on most of these trips. I've taken over 85 students to the Antarctic now. We um, go down for periods ranging from two weeks to to five months. It's hard for me to go for five months these days because I have two boys in high school here, but I used to go for five, six months at a time. And I will continue to do that. I mean, for me as an educator at Stanford, it's one of the things that I'm most excited about. Our students are really smart, you know, and, and they do engage in the research. 
They write papers. And I can tell you that when undergraduate students uh, write a paper, first author in a peer-reviewed journal, uh, as an undergraduate, they can write their own ticket for what they do after Stanford. And there's many examples of that. Okay, so a few remarks to set the stage. You know, I, I mean, in some ways, I'm best off, I think I... I I give this talk in places like Nebraska. <laughs> I haven't done it in Mississippi yet, but, but I've done it in Texas. And, and, you know, there's always a lot of pushback on some of these global climate change things. My sense is that in San Francisco, you know, <laughs> it's like preaching to the choir, the converted already, right? But I do want to go over a few things because some of these points came up in the debate last week as well. Um, among climate scientists, global warming, it's an undeniable fact. You know, we have such a good temperature record. We know exactly how much the planet's warmed up in the last 100 years. It's about one degree centigrade. The same is true for the rise in CO2, right? It's easy to measure the concentration of carbon dioxide, the concentration of methane. You know, we make those measurements at many sites. Um, what Debate exists is over exactly how much of the temperature rise is due to man-made uh, CO2 over the last 100 years. And, and this is our best estimate as of October 2008. And there, believe it or not, there is kind of a, a large jury of international scientists that keep reassessing. And, and, and the assessment is that there's a greater than 95% probability that the majority of this observed warming is attributable to man's activities. And just to beat that to death, what that really means is that there's a less than 5% chance that it is not. So those are the odds. Those are the odds that you work with when you make a decision to either take action or not with respect to global warming. You know, and the odds are pretty significant, right? Um, the other thing that, that you, know, you think about global warming, it's a horrible term, actually, because temperature change is the least of our worries, Right? The significant threats come in the form of changes in rainfall, changes in sea level, right? Global warming, oh, it almost sounds like a warm and fuzzy thing, right? And it's global warming sounds better than cooling. Uh, it's just not a very, very good term for the phenomena. Uh, so often we're starting to talk about it as just abrupt climate change. Um, anthropogenic climate change is a, is a boring term, but a little bit better than global warming. Um, but anyway, these changes in rainfall and sea level rise are the most serious threats. And, uh, and it's absolutely true that water balance perturbations, and by water balance, I mean the balance between how much it rains and how much it evaporates. Right? And that's what it's all about here in California, the balance between rainfall and evaporation. It will have a profound effect on California's economy. It's already doing so. And, uh, and it has some pretty significant international security implications as well. And we will discuss those. I couldn't help this because it was a year ago, right, that the word came out on the Nobel uh, Prize. Uh, October 12th was when it was announced, and, and there's Al Gore. Um, and then Stephen Schneider at Stanford, Tom Heller's an environmental lawyer at Stanford, and uh, they worked uh, together as part of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Now, this, this international commission, it has thousands of people involved in it. It, it is somewhat political, but... The people that write the chapters are scientists or economists or social scientists, right? Uh, but there is a political element that's introduced into this process. But this projection of warming of a 2 degrees to about 4 degrees centigrade, that range by the end of this century, you know, that really comes 100% from the science community. And this, this group made the attribution to man's activities very likely. 
Now, you've probably seen criticism of the IPCC. It's the blog world's full of criticism. People say that, you know, they, that they have this sky is falling mentality. Um, but the truth is, they're actually quite conservative. You know, they operate as a consensus process. And, if, and they do bring on board uh, scientists that have different opinions. And, and so, in fact, you know, many people in the mainstream climate community would say that that range really, if, if it's in error at all, it's erring towards the low range, right? That, that the actual climate changes that we think could happen could be much higher. And there are some very credible climate simulations that estimate temperature changes of 8 to 12 degrees centigrade by the end of the century. Now they're kind of out there on their own. You know, there's 20 or 30 models that do this kind of thing. And, and, and those ranges, those numbers, 8 to 12 degrees centigrade, are, are not reproduced by the majority of those other models. But the fact is this, you know, based on physics alone, you cannot prove that that 8 to 12 degree estimate or projection is wrong. Right? It's on the table is one possible outcome. So, you know, this takes us into the area of risk analysis. We have a range of outcomes. Uh, it will be warmer. That's virtually certain. Is it going to be 2 degrees? Is it going to be 10 degrees? Is it going to be 12 degrees? And at what level does that change become dangerous to us? So I'll address some of those things here as well. Now, what about the Gore movie? I'm sure most of you guys saw that. Did he get it right? Well, mostly, but as you probably know, the movie was taken to court in uh, the United Kingdom, and uh, one of the early court rulings suggested there were 15 areas where he got it wrong. And, um, and actually, it ended up going to the, the kind of UK equivalent of the Supreme Court, and uh, they passed a judgment less than two months ago saying that the majority of the material presented in the Gore movie was correct. But here's just one example of where he got something wrong. Um, he suggested that, that the snows of Kilimanjaro would be no more by the year 2020. It's an iconic thing, this snow-covered mountain of Hemingway, right? And um, the fact is that one of the things we know from, from doing physical measurements all over the summit of Kilimanjaro now, and there's 29 different glaciers up there, and they're all doing different stuff. That ice is melting faster than ever, but you know what? It's also snowing more than it ever has, and the balance is on the side of the snowfall. The majority of those glaciers are actually growing, even though they're melting faster than before. It's because it's snowing a lot more. And that increase in rainfall right near the equator, that's one of the fundamental predictions of global warming. And the point there is that one site doesn't tell the story. Um, you know, it, it, the climate system is very complex, very heterogeneous. It's really difficult to, to make a firm attribution to man's effects from a single site in a complicated system like this. And we just have to keep that in mind. So I led a Stanford alumni trip. We were, Charmaine and I were talking about this uh, right before the talk, you know, the Alumni Association runs all these travel study trips, and they do tend to be really expensive. I could never afford them. But I did design one that was much cheaper, and it was cheaper because we camped every night. We didn't stay in hotels. And uh, so I led a group of 14 Stanford alumni, and some of them with their kids, uh, up to the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro last year. And we actually camped at the summit at 19,000 feet. Um, our group ranged in age from... Uh, 16 to 72. The 72-year-old was a lawyer from Los Angeles. I said, what did you do to train? And he said, nothing. <laughs> right? And he made it to the summit. Uh, if any of you guys aspire to do something truly exciting, 
go to the top of that mountain and you will learn so much about animals and volcanoes and ice and human nature. Okay, a couple of things that have come out. I mean, here in San Francisco, you've seen articles about this. Warming west is ground zero for wildfires. We had an enormously active wildfire season this year. There were days when the city was blanketed in this this haze from the forest fires in the Central Valley. And and that will continue and, and get worse based on virtually all projections of what's going to happen to rainfall and evaporation in the state. That leads to newer headlines, one like this. California took on the energy crisis. Now it faces a water crisis. Makes it sound like they're different, but they're not. The single biggest consumer of electrical power in this state are the pumps that move water from the northern half to the southern half. And it's a big number, right? It's something like 30% of the total power output from the state goes into moving water around. So these things are connected. And as the state dries out, right, the need to move water over longer distances at different times will become even greater. So, I mean, they're power, energy, Water are connected more so in California than in any other state in the Union. Okay, some of you may have seen this. This dropped off the radar screen pretty quickly in July. You know, we have these things called national intelligence estimates and national intelligence assessments. This was a national intelligence assessment that was done by all of the agencies involved in international security. And they produced a... um, a document, a classified document. They presented an executive summary to the Congress and the Senate in June, and they concluded that, that global warming in the next 50 years will have very significant national security implications to the United States. They mainly revolve around perturbation in food supply and water supply, causing entire nations to be stressed and, and therefore you know, people turning to fundamentalism and hating the United States and other more developed countries. That's mainly what they're saying, but the analysis goes very deep, and, and it's, it hasn't been declassified yet. I'm not quite sure why there's some movements to try to declassify this thing. It seems to me it's something that we would all want to know. What did our taxpayer dollars produce in terms of a study of the national security implications of climate change? And then some of you saw the, the vice presidential debate. I couldn't decide whether to include this or not, but in the end I thought... You know, I'm going to talk about this topic. And one of the things that Governor Palin said, she acknowledged that human activities may contribute to global climate change, which, which was a, a, almost a first for her because she has very firmly denied that connection as recently as three weeks ago. Uh, but she also said that cyclical temperature changes on our planet contribute. And then I think the most telling point, she said she didn't want to argue about the causes of climate change, rather argue about how we're going to you know, get from here to there and fix it. And Biden, as you may recall, immediately jumped in and said, hey, you know, how can you know what to do to tackle the problem if you don't know what caused it? And we know what caused it, right? So that's still out there on the kind of national stage as a debating point. Um, This is very recent, two days ago. Uh, As you may know, the European Union, most of the nations in Europe have quietly announced they're not going to make their Kyoto target. And, uh, and then kind of shamefully, you know, after announcing that, they've come up with some pretty aggressive plans for mitigation of carbon output in the future. And what's happened in the last 
one month alone with the economic crisis in Europe is that most of those countries are now suggesting that we hold off on that, that we can't afford this double whammy of an economic crisis and um, having to do these things that have real cost to us, right, uh, for mitigating carbon production. And that's an excellent point. You know, we're facing it here in the United States as well, and it's something that we should talk about. It all comes back to the assessment of risk, right? So one of the ways to understand about that risk is to go to a, a detailed and careful economic analysis of outcomes. Sir Nicholas Stern did this in 2006. If you haven't read this, it's a great report. Um, it actually reads like kind of a mystery novel, right? I mean, it's more exciting than you could imagine. And, um, and at the end of the day, you know, after this careful analysis, he says acting now to avoid negative consequences of global warming requires only 1% of the world's GDP, and waiting until later, and he doesn't really define it, but he, it's about 2050, right? So uh, gross domestic product. So all of the money that's generated by all the nations and economies of the world. Um, that if we wait till later, it's going to cost us much more, between 5 and 20%. You know, that's an enormous hit. Imagine having a burden like that on top of the perturbations that already exist in the market. Right, so doing something now is like buying a very cheap insurance policy. That would be another way to look at it. Now, here's the other thing. You know, th- this was a really interesting article in Fortune, and it came out in May, and there hasn't been a whole lot of follow-up since. But their basic numbers are right because I actually I started thinking about it, and I have some friends that are in the carbon trading community here and in Europe right now. And you know, Europe has they actually have some mandatory. Um, carbon trading um, markets where if you're doing a certain activity, you must go through that market. In the U.S., it's all voluntary at the moment. But, you know, we have numbers, numbers for the price of a ton of carbon. And if you project what's going to happen between now and the year 2050, you know, how much money could be generated by these growing carbon markets? And this assumes that we do adopt cap-and-trade type policies. You know, the number is about $3 trillion dollars worth of value. Now, when I read that at the time, I thought, wow, that's great. We've got to jump on that bandwagon. But then you've you got to ask, you know, is that really new wealth or is this some kind of weird credit derivative? You know? <laughs> like we've been reading about these funny constructs. And um, the answer is somewhere in between, actually. It's not as bizarre as some of the credit derivatives that got us in trouble uh, on Wall Street. Uh, it is actually a real a new kind of market, and, and it's interesting because a lot of the innovation that's gone on and how to think about this, how to develop these markets, it's happened in two places, in California, mostly in the Bay Area, and also in the state of Michigan, right? Those are the places where there's been a lot of innovation recently. So my point here is that, you know, we can use some of these climate change mitigation measures as a way to help bail us out of an economic crisis, right? So there's some profit element to this as well. Okay, I'm going to... I think this is um, just an update of the sea ice story, and it also has a geopolitical ramification. Um, This was a figure that Al Gore showed in his movie. There's Greenland, Alaska, the United States. And what he didn't show, because his movie came out before 2007, was the 2007 version, the minimum sea ice extent in the month of August in the Arctic. So 2007... 1979. So, you know, in 1979, the Russians could not navigate along this coastline of Siberia uh, reliably. 
you know, this would be the ice minimum the rest of the year. There's more ice than that. Uh, but now they've got their entire north slope. You know, we have a north slope of Alaska here with a lot of oil and gas. The Russians have this much, much, much larger north slope of Siberia, right? And it's reliably ice-free every single year. You know, there's this land grab going up there right now. The Russians use submersibles, these little submarines, the same kind that I work in, to plant a flag at the bottom of the sea at the North Pole this year. Two subs, one to plant the flag, one to take the picture, right? You have to do it that way. And their claim is that Peary and Cook, these guys didn't really get to the North Pole. They were on ice. It was floating around. They didn't really know where they were. But the Russian flag is now planted permanently at the North Pole, and it's Russian territory. Furthermore, they've been arguing that the North Pole's about there, that it's connected geologically to rocks in Siberia, so that everything over here, all the way out to the North Pole, is theirs. Now, the Canadians... Uh, the Danes, the United States, I mean, everybody immediately lodged a protest. It hasn't been dealt with yet. We aren't signatories. The United States is one of the few nations that's not a signatory to the law of the sea, so we don't even have a court of arbitration to argue, right? Uh, The Russians are doing everything they can to document their claim to Arctic undersea territory, and it's a goldmine for oil and gas and for many other reasons as well. Look at this. The Northwest Passage is open. Not the case in 1979. Now it's the case. Canada announced this year that, sure, U.S. ships could use this passage now, but they're going to have to pay a fee. (laughs) And the U.S. said, there's no way we're going to pay Canada for our ships to go through the Northwest Passage. So, I mean, it belongs to Canada. You can definitely agree that this is all Canadian territory, but it's it's a sore point. You know, these things are all brand new international issues that we haven't had to face, right, until the last couple of years. So it's pretty exciting times for international relations with respect to ICE. Okay, so, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot with respect to San Francisco. I just brought in a new PhD student who's doing a dissertation on how the city of San Francisco would have to respond to a sea level rise of five to six feet. Now, We've had a whole series of of sea level conferences recently, and this is actually a conservative consensus view, that we can expect sea level to rise one and a half meters by the year 2100. So one and a half meters is five feet. Now, it may not seem like that much, but, you know, our port facilities around the globe, although they're capable of handling sea level rise of one or two feet, they really can't handle five feet. Right? That means they have to extend piers, retrench back on shore. Um, it may sound like it's not a big deal, but you know, it took 200 years to build the major ports around the world. You know, 200 years of development of the infrastructure, and we're going to have to respond to that. And, and some would argue that we need to start responding in a significant financial sense in the next um, 10 years or so. Now... A little bit scarier is the notion that the sea level rise could be much higher. And, and one of my projects in the Antarctic actually focuses on that, and we'll talk about that science here in just a moment. Here's the city of Auckland, and if, and if the West Antarctic ice sheet melted, which um, we now expect will happen when temperature gets two degrees above what it is today, um, that's Auckland with a 20-foot sea level rise. Virtually all of downtown is inundated. Now... Two degrees, right? And earlier I said that's the lowest range of the reliable estimate of 
temperature change by the year 2100. So if it's higher than that, it's going to happen even faster. The question is, how fast does the ice melt? We don't really know the answer to that. Um, Okay, so I wanted to just say a little bit briefly about arguments against um, anthropogenic climate change. Uh, One that you see all the time now is that the Earth has been cooling since 1998, and I haven't been able to track this one down because it's just not true, you know, its origin. But but I see it in the Wall Street Journal all the time. It's cropped up in the Washington Post, um, mostly in the op-ed pages. Somebody will say, what's with global warming? It's been cooling for the last 10 years. But it's not true. If you actually look at the analyses of global temperatures, you know, we still think 2005 and 2007 are the warmest years globally. Um, and they're warmer than 1998. And, of course, we don't know yet about 19, or 2008. Going back in time, it, some people say there was a time about 1,000 years ago where the planetary temperatures were warmer than they are today, much warmer, some people say. And I work in that community. You know, I study that event. I study what happened in the Pacific, study what happened in Europe a 1,000 years ago, and, it, and it's just not true. It, it was relatively warm, but there's many papers that show that the temperatures of the last 50 years are the highest of at least the last few thousand years, right? Another thing is model bashing. Um, it's, it's popular to say that the computer models of climate change are unreliable, and, you know, that was true 20 years ago. I wrote a whole suite of papers complaining about models not capturing what really happened. But in the last 10 years, I, I can't write those papers anymore. They actually do a pretty credible job, and it's because of our investment international investment in, in these massive simulations of the global climate system. And those models, you know, when we run them backwards for a 1,000 years, you know, I, I give them a temperature record from Palau or from Australia. And if they run their model backwards for a 1,000 years, they can simulate what I actually see. And so then I say, well, that looks pretty good. Why don't you go ahead and run it into the future, right? And then they do so, and that's where we get some of these projections of temperature change. But of the last century, they can only do a credible job of reproducing observed temperatures if they include the man-made trace gas effects, carbon dioxide. So, I mean, that's a pretty powerful argument these days. This last one, um, we read this all the time, too. I get a lot of emails suggesting that we're all in cahoots, that, you know, we, we do this to stir up fear, and we're trying to raise money, and, you know, we're bowing to peer pressure, and it, it's... Uh, you know, it just doesn't work that way. You know, like, I'm a trained scientist. We are trained to be sharks, right? We are sharks. We are trained to tear other scientists apart. If I can prove that so-and-so that published his article in Science Magazine or Nature is wrong, that's a home run for me. So we are always very critically evaluating each other's work and each other's proposals. So when scientists start to come to a consensus view after a period of 20 years of kind of feeding frenzy, you know, there's probably something going on there that's real. And uh, so, I mean, this is a specious argument. Okay, the ice core data. You know, and Gore got criticized for this in his movie because he talked about how the ice cores from Antarctica and Greenland show temperatures going up and down and carbon dioxide going up and down. And, and it's been popular to say, but really, when the planet starts to warm up, temperature changes first and CO2 follows, that there's this lead lag relationship. And, and uh, that's actually an irrelevant argument because we've never, no scientist has ever suggested that the ice ages on this planet were caused by big changes in CO2 as the trigger. 
And then we've always made an attribution to these small changes in the orbital uh, parameters the, the, as the Earth's orbit becomes more egg-shaped versus a circle back to an oval. You know, those are the things that cause us to tip from an ice age into a warm, warm interval or a warm interval into an ice age. The problem has been that those changes are really tiny, and, and for many years we couldn't figure out how these tiny changes in sunshine you know, could cause an ice age. Well, it turns out CO2 is the amplifier, and it's the only way we can predict what happened with ice through time on the planet. So here's one of these ice core uh, settings. You know, Buckminster Fuller would have been proud. All the ice drillers are in there. You know, they're kind of drillers or wimpy souls. They have to be kept warm. Here's the big derrick. And when the ice core comes up, it looks like this. Ice with bubbles. And the bubbles, that's the air that was trapped between the snowflakes, right? And as the snowflakes get pressed into little kernels, they call it fern, and then the fern gets turned into really hard ice, the air gets compressed into these little bubbles. And it's actually under pressure. You know, if you make your martini out of you know, with some ice from these glacial, deep glacial ice settings, as the ice melts, it kind of fizzes and explodes. So, um, but it's, in fact, very expensive ice to do that kind of thing with. And uh, so here's a system where this is a sample of the ancient trapped atmosphere, and then in between the ice tells us the composition of the snow, which tells us the temperature of that setting. And, and this wasn't in the Gore movie. These are brand-new results. It just came out at the beginning of the summer. It now goes back 800,000 years. What Al Gore showed us was 400,000 years. And uh, we're not going to look at the, the middle, the blue. We'll just look at the red, carbon dioxide concentration, and the black, which is temperature. Temperature we get from the isotopic composition of the ice, and it's a good thermometer, um, this is simply a direct measurement. You, know, you just crack the ice in a vacuum, collect the air, measure the CO2. And so we're going back 800,000 years. Here's the modern time. So you can see we're at this time where it's kind of warm. And you go back 10,000 years ago, and it was 10 degrees colder than it is today. 120,000 years ago, it was warm again. 150,000 years ago, it was cold again. Maybe 240 warm Cold, warm, cold, warm, cold. It's just the seesaw pattern of climate change. And it's all natural, right? We weren't making this happen. CO2 goes up and down. And, and you, you know, the, the fit is compelling. When it's warm, CO2 is high. When it's cold, CO2 is low. And, and these things just match up perfectly, right? Through the last 800,000 years, pretty soon we'll have ice that goes back a million and a half and and I expect it to be the same story there. You know, when the, when the glacial-interglacial changes are small, like they are here, the CO2 changes are small. When they're big, the temperature changes are big. And it's a sensitivity experiment. At this site in Antarctica, CO2 changes by 80 parts per million, and the temperature changes by 10 to 12 degrees centigrade. 80 parts per million is equal to 10 to 12 degrees centigrade. In the last 100 years alone, we've raised CO2 levels by 100 parts per million. So more than what happened during the entire 800,000 years, right? So, and if everything else is equal and there's no reason not to expect it to be, we should expect this site, Vostok or Dome C in Antarctica, to increase its temperature by maybe 12 to 16 degrees centigrade. That's a lot, right? That's more than we expect anywhere else on the planet. 
Now, is that a big deal for the ice? Probably not, because the mean annual temperature there is minus 60 degrees, right? Like if you are one of those people that's stuck there for two years, you know, in the station, minus 60 or minus 45, which would you rather have? So I'd rather have the minus 45. But where it does have a big impact is on the margins of the ice. So this, you know, when I see this kind of thing, and it fits with basic physics, what we know about CO2, you know, to me, I think, the challenge should be for the people that, that would say CO2 doesn't cause warming and cooling on the planet. You know, it, it's not the other way around, right? So uh, this is a very compelling bit of evidence in support of anthropogenic warming in the years ahead. Okay, so I think actually I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip to number seven here. Another thing that, that people have said, and this is what Sarah Palin brought up in the debate, was that it's all natural variability. It's things like volcanoes, the El Nino cycle, sunspots, that these things are dominating the climate system and that our contribution with CO2 gas from fossil fuels is really pretty minor compared to that. And, and that's my specialty. I work a lot on that. Um, there are many natural causes of climate change, these exchanges of heat between the ocean and the atmosphere, you know, when we have a big El Nino, it can raise the global temperature half a degree centigrade. I mean, that's a huge amount because a lot of heat leaves the ocean and goes into the atmosphere. Really large volcanoes can cause the planet to cool down one or two degrees. I mean, that's a big effect as well. Uh, the day after tomorrow scenario where the North Atlantic current stops, um, that thing really happens. It's happened over and over and over in geologic time, and we, we know its magnitude. And finally, we know that the sun's output is not constant. It does vary. So these are all natural forces of climate change. Then there's all these human-induced causes. There's changes in land use. When we cut down trees, it changes the reflectivity of the surface. It changes how much moisture is held at the surface. Um, there's aerosols from industrial activities. And then there's trace gases. You know, we talk a lot about carbon dioxide, but it's also methane, ozone, oxides of sulfur and, and nitrogen. And here's the thing. You know, when... When George Bush Jr. was first elected to the office of president, you know, within a month of taking office, he commissioned a National Academy panel to answer 13 questions about climate change. One of the questions was, is, are man's activities causing global warming? And it sounds like an easy question. It's certainly a short question. But think about the difficulty in answering it. Because if you're going to make an attribution to, say, see, oops, to CO2, you actually have to know something about all of these other things here, land use change, aerosols, and all of these natural forces of climate. So it actually took them about six months in the work of about 100 people to come up with an answer. But, you know, seven years ago now, they came back and they said, yeah, it looks almost certain, right? And, and there was a very quiet announcement from the White House that, yeah, it looks like man's activities are causing warming, and, but we're not, you know, really what we need to work on now is how to adapt to the new world, Right? not how to kind of pull back and, and reduce emissions. Okay, so in terms of natural variability, this is a, a summary of the last thousand years of temperature. It's what we think the temperatures were on the planet uh, back to the Earth, 1000 AD. And there's all kinds of wiggly lines here. It comes from tree rings, from corals, from sediments, from cave deposits, ice cores, from historical documents, and... And, and different people have different ideas about how cold it was in the year 1600. You know, that's when the Thames River would freeze solid every uh, winter at the Port of London, right? Pretty big perturbation. Some people think it was colder. Some people think it was warmer. But 
it doesn't really matter. You know, all of these <laughs> temperatures, the warmest estimates back here, they're still lower than the temperatures that we've measured just in the last decade. So, I mean, they call this the hockey stick. Here's the stick, and here's the blade. It's real, it exists, and it, it's the result of decades of research by lots and lots of people around the globe. Okay, I want to turn to Antarctic ice, and I'll tell you a very short story about a drilling project that we've just finished there last year. Um, you may know that Antarctica is shedding its ice shelves like crazy. Here's the Larsen B ice shelf. Uh, it melted in a period of, um, you know, this is the size of Delaware or Rhode Island, right? It's the size of a small state. And it, and it disintegrated in a period of three weeks. Uh, no one had predicted that that kind of thing could happen. And it's one of many. All of these red bits here on the Antarctic Peninsula, that's the part that sticks up towards South America. That's ice that we've lost in the last 20 years. And the thing about this part of Antarctica, the western part, is that that ice is sitting on bedrock that's grounded, it's ice that's grounded on bedrock that's way below sea level, in some cases 2,000 meters below sea level. And so although it's touching rock, it's also partly floating. And so when sea level rises, you know, even a little bit, a few centimeters, it actually lifts some of this ice off of contact with the sediments and the rock underneath, and that makes it easier for it to break off. If it breaks off and melts, sea level goes up a little bit more, it raises the ice sheet even more, breaks off. It's a runaway feedback effect. You know, that's why we're worried about this one part of Antarctica as a source of, of a very quick 20-foot rise in sea level. So this is a project here. We've been drilling in the Antarctic um, through the world's largest floating glacier, the Ross Ice Shelf. Uh, Stanford's a, a member, a founding member of the project, and you know, it, it costs about $14 million to put this show on the road, but but what we learned was really astounding. We drilled here on this piece of floating glacial ice that's the size of Alaska. You know, it's the largest bit of ice. And, and the idea is that if this ice is present, it's because there's glacial ice flo flowing into the ocean from West Antarctica. And by drilling here, we can see how often in the past this ice shelf disappeared and reformed. And people thought maybe it disappeared once or twice in the last few million years. Um, here's the drilling rig. It's beautifully clean compared to an oil drilling rig. Uh, and here's what some of the sediments look like. It, I mean, it's really pretty simple. We read these sediments like a book. You know, the, the sediments at the seabed come up like this with big chunks of stone and sand. That stuff could only be delivered out onto the seabed by the action of ice. Ice carries all these big rocks and things. How deep can you drill? These were the deepest boreholes ever drilled in the Antarctic. So we went through 200 meters of ice, a kilometer of water, and then another kilometer and a half into this seabed. Uh, altogether, um, over a mile, mile and a quarter. So it's a long piece of pipe. <laughs> Why are we drilling there? Uh, in part to see how often we saw this this kind of glacial evidence alternating with this stuff. These are the remains of microscopic plants. And the plants can only live there when there's no ice. They have to have sunlight, so it's an ice-free, open-water, ocean environment. And what we found was that this, this big piece of ice decayed away completely and formed anew up to 60 times in the last 4 million years. 60 times. Now, that's a brand-new result 
And there really doesn't appear to be any other explanation. We've been racking our brains trying to figure out another way to explain this. Now, every time this ice disappeared and came back, sea level went up and down by 20 feet. And then here's the kicker. It took a 2 degree centigrade change to do that, right? 2 degrees centigrade is all it took to remove all the ice from West Antarctica. So, actually, I'm running out of time, and I do want to leave time for you guys to ask questions, but... I'll just say that, you know, as we go back through time, you know, and we look at, at, at temperature change, I mean, this is one degree, two degrees here, um, global temperature change over millions of years, you know, the West Antarctic ice sheet oscillations, these, you know, the ice melts, it forms anew, it melts, it forms anew, they began uh, long ago, and actually in this case, maybe a temperature change as small as one degree was enough to initiate that loss of ice, so... So if you say, you know, are we under significant threat of, of major sea level rise 20 feet in our future, I'd have to say it's, it's almost certain, right? In fact, 99% certain or higher. If you were to say, is it going to happen in the next 100 years? I'd say probably not. Is it going to happen in the next two to 300 years? I'd say probably. You know, it's that timescale event. But just think, I mean, how, how long do you think it would take, you know, humanity to prepare for a 20-foot sea level rise? One-third of Florida is gone, right? Entire nations are gone in the Pacific. So it's a, it's a pretty big deal. Okay, I'm going to finish up then with some, uh, the summary of what the science says. Um, we know average temperatures have risen 0.8 degrees centigrade in the last 100 years. Uh, the warming of the past century is unprecedented in at least the last 2,000 years and probably 10,000 years. Um, the simulations of ocean and atmosphere physics, they can only produce the temperature record that we observe with thermometers over the last 100 years by including fossil fuel CO2. Again, the mainstream model predictions show a temperature change of you know, 1.8 to 4 degrees centigrade, but some models show much higher changes than that, 8 to 12 degrees centigrade. Uh, the projected changes in rainfall and sea level rise pose the greatest challenges, and certainly the, the changes in rainfall pose the near-term, short-term um, national security risks for us. And so the important question for policy right now is the risk of, of dangerous change, climate change, sufficiently large that we take significant measures now to, to mitigate our exposure. Well, you could probably guess where I come down on that question, right? I think, I think it is. Um, if you think about things that we should do in California, about half of our emissions come from the transportation sector. It's larger here than in many other states. So, you know, and most of that's personal transportation. So we have an immediate method or vehicle to, to reduce our emissions. Uh, electricity consumption, you know, if you look at the per capita electrical consumption in the state of California over the last, um, you know, 40 years, I mean, we were tracking along the United States average until the mid, early to mid-70s, which was our first kind of call to crisis, right? And the state tightened its belt. And in fact, our per capita consumption hasn't gone up. Our total consumption has because the state's population has grown. But, you know, what this tells me is that California is different from the rest of the nation, that, that we do have the will and ideas and technologies to, if we can flatten this out, we can also make it drop down, right? And it's happening now. The, the Department of Water and Power in Los Angeles, and they provide water and power to 5 million people, you know, they set a target of 20% renewable power generation by the year 2011, and they're going to make it. They're already at about 12%. 
Uh, it's very ambitious. They're also reducing domestic power consumption. They sent out compact fluorescent light bulbs, I think a pack of four to every ratepayer. That's kind of a scary thought. Like, can you imagine the U.S. Postal Service with, you know, 20 million light bulbs <laughs> with mercury in them? I mean, it <laughs> kind of boggles the mind. But, you know, they're thinking the right way to, make, to provide these for free, right, and also provide the recycling uh, programs. But just to get people starting to think that way. So we can do things in California that, that other parts of the nation can't. The state actions, you know, as you vote, you vote for one initiative or another, or politicians that support things like the Pavley Bill, Jan Pavley, um, the West Coast Governor's Global Warming Initiative, which was really a landmark initiative. And then most recently, Assembly Bill 32, the California Global Warming Solutions Act, you know, where California actually signed on to achieving a Kyoto target of its own. And we, we actually stand a pretty good chance of making it in part because our economy tanked, right? It's tanked on two different occasions in the last seven years, but, you know, so it's not like we're growing aggressively and yet we're deciding to cut way back on emissions. Our emissions have stopped for a variety of reasons, uh, not just altruism. Personal actions, you got to like this poster, right? You know, Hummer came out with this ad, does well at the polls, and somebody, somebody wrote in, does well at melting the polls, right? <laughs> So, but it is your most important uh, personal climate decision. And, of course, the, the, all these energy star things that you can do, um, compact fluorescence make a difference, getting an energy audit for your house and trying to get something like that done for your workplace as well. Um, we've done all this stuff at home, and it actually makes a pretty big difference. You know, I had, I've got my boys doing energy audits on a monthly basis now, and their allowance depends on the fact that we're reducing our energy. <laughs> so... Uh, and I, do, I have one more short slide after this one, but, you know, at Stanford we have this Woods Institute, and, and you know, there isn't a single solution. It has to be a really broad portfolio because we don't know what's going to work, right, or how well it's going to work at this point in time. And so, obviously, the low-hanging fruit is energy efficiency and conservation. It saves us money. It's not that hard to do. You know, how, how could anyone not want to do that? And, and we can make enormous gains through efficiency and conservation. Energy source substitution wherever we can, kind of solar for fossil, methane for coal, uh, diesel for gas. Uh, the regrowth of our nuclear power industry, it has to happen. You know, I believe that very strongly, and I think we can do it safely. Um, renewables, major investment in wind and solar, which is happening aggressively in California, particularly in the L.A. Basin region. Um, we also have learned a lot, actually, about how to manage our agricultural fields so that they take up carbon for 10, 20, 30-year time periods. And that's actually a big deal. And it doesn't cost a whole lot. You just change crop rotation. You change the timing of fertilizing um, and all of these things. Uh, CO2 sequestration, um, that's happening now in pilot plants, and we're going to continue doing that. There's a lot of research going on at Stanford right now about about uh, carbon sequestration, capture and sequestration, and it'll be a big part of, of the next 50 years. And the reason is this, that you know, it took over 120 years to build our fossil fuel-based energy infrastructure. You, know, it do, you can't remove it and do something new in 10 or 20 years. I mean, we will be fossil fuel-based for 50 years minimum. And the way out of the trap, then, is to capture the carbon. So that, that's a really big part of it. So this is the last one. I don't know if many of you guys saw this. You know, this is on a Starbucks coffee cup. 
you know, the way I see it, so-called global warming is just a secret ploy by wacko tree huggers to make America energy independent, clean our air and water, improve the fuel efficiency of our vehicles, kickstart 21st century industries and make our cities safer and more livable. Don't let them get away with it. <laughs> so, you know, that captures the irony of this whole situation, right? Because, you know, it shouldn't be a Republican or a Democratic issue, right? We should all want to get to the same place together for a wide variety of reasons, and they extend way beyond the risk of climate change. So I'm sorry I've gone over. Charmaine was giving me like the, you know, <laughs> cut it off time. It's five minutes to one. I, I'll accept questions, and I'm happy to, to stay and talk to you guys for at least half an hour, 45 minutes here. Thanks. Let's see. Start. Now that's a, I mean, that's a good example. It, it doesn't have to be an either-or situation. Uh, you know, there's some basic rules you would follow. You don't build wind-generating towers and flyways. And, and we can take cues from uh, other nations. I've, I've consulted for the government of New Zealand on their wind generation system because that was a big deal for them. But they went to these very large but very slow-moving uh, turbine blades that don't have an impact on birds in that setting. And they've had them in place now for over five years, and they've got the, the bird studies to show that, you know, there's, there's turbines that are dangerous for birds, and there's turbines that either are not at all or are much less so. And, and those are the technologies to go with. I mean, the new towers that are in place in uh, kind of the eastern end of L.A. are of that kind. They're massive, and they have these big reduction gears. They are not quite as efficient at generating power, but the blade moves slowly enough that birds can make their way through it. But who's stimulating the discussion on that, those trade-offs in any one of these fields? Yeah, well, there, you know, that's a good point. I mean, we, you know, the problem is that all of these environmental issues related to energy have kind of dropped into the, the background. I mean, you know, we have fora at Stanford, public forum, you know, discussions where these, all these issues get raised and they're open to people to come and we invite legislators to come and people in the energy industry and, and you know, these things are falling off the radar screen because of the, the economy, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, there is a burgeoning um, kind of publishing industry now, so many more new journals on green technologies and, and, and new journals that, you know, are available for the lay public. And you can find actually a lot on the web related to turbine technologies. A lot of it is, you know, Germany's 12% um, wind-powered now, and they've, they're a nation of bird watchers. <laughs> you know, so they fought those battles and won them five years ago, and, and that summary exists on the web. I could, if you email me, I'll send you some pointers to that. Brian. Um, earlier, Rob, you mentioned um, the evolving carbon market. Well, I mean, AB32 is going to lead us into the direction of carbon trading internal to the state. Um, 
you know, I, I'm not aware of the, the details, what's happening right now. Given your involvement in the Santa Cruz Mountains, you probably know more about that than I do. But I think, um, you know, credits for good land management of our wildlands as well as um, the agricultural developed lands, you know, has to be part of the mix, right? I mean, that's a huge carbon reservoir. The, the terrestrial living carbon biomasses, you know, many, it's over 10 times the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. So if we can manage that, we're going to do a good thing. Let's see, in front here. Okay, There's, there were two questions there, really. One was, you know, how does the natural variability factor into how we think about the trajectory of anthropogenic climate change? And then the other one was, you know, what's going on with rainfall? And I talked about evaporation and, not, and international security. So let me do that one first. Um, the idea there is, think about Java. You know, it's an island about the size of California, but much higher population, 100 million people, maybe 110 or 120 now. It's, one, it's very densely populated. Um, they're very much dependent upon rice and local agriculture for food, and it's an Islamic state, right, Indonesia. And, um, you know, one of the first-order predictions of global warming is that, that Java will become much drier, you know, 20, 30, 40% drier over the next 20 to 30 years. There's a lot of places where we make a projection like that, like we think the central U.S. will become drier. But our level of certainty is not as high as it is in the case of, of Java. What's going to happen at Java, it's going to very much simulate an El Nino warming event. And during El Nino's, Java dries up and catches on fire. Same thing in Borneo. And so, the you know, what happens when on the face of this kind of long, steady warming causing Java to get drier and drier and drier at the same time that their population is increasing. And then they have a big El Nino. And then there's 150 million people on the verge of starvation. You know, that's the source of the security risk for the United States, right? Because people don't tolerate those conditions, especially when it's of that magnitude. In India, in 1888, there was... It's the most famous failure of the monsoon. And it, it's not like it didn't rain at all, but the, the rains came late and they were relatively weak. Two and a half million people died of starvation, and it was a time of just major civil turmoil in India, right, under British rule at the time. You know, some of the projected changes involve much larger populations and, and involve nations with armies. and you know, So that's, that's what we worry about. And that's what I said just a couple of seconds ago speaks to your other question. You know, if you think about global warming as providing this long-term trajectory into a warmer and different world, you know, also on top of that are the extreme events, right? Changes, big, a big volcano causes it to be cool and dry, or a big El Nino causes it to be hot and dry um, that exacerbates some of the extremes in climate. And so, you know, a, a fundamental and very believable prediction 
made by all the models that project our, our greenhouse future is that climate extremes will become more frequent and more profound. That the droughts last longer and they're more severe, that the high temperature events last longer and they're higher temperatures. And you know, that, that's the peril that we face. Let's see, right there, sir. Isn't it true that uh, melting of the uh, part of ice pack where we changed that reflective surface of such a huge part of the world into a black heat absorbing surface is going to have massive impact on at least northern hemisphere weather? Yeah, that's, you know, that's part of the, they call it polar amplification that, you know, as geologists, people that study climate change over many timescales, I mean, one of the things that's always true is that when the planet's warming up, it does so much more so at the poles. When the planet's cooling down, it does so much more so at the poles. And part of it's that reflectivity feedback that you just described. It operates with glacial ice and sea ice. Ice, be it freshwater ice on land or ocean ice, saltwater ice, is white. It reflects light. So when you're growing ice, you're reflecting ice back into the space, uh, reflecting heat back into space, it gets colder, you can make more ice. The opposite happens when the ice is melting. And so one of the reasons that, you know, it is a reliable prediction that we'll have ice-free conditions in the central Arctic basin at the North Pole by the year 2013 is that it's so open now, like this year's a case in point. You know, half of the Arctic was completely ice-free in the month of August, and that water absorbed a lot of heat because it's dark that it used to not be able to absorb when it was covered with ice. And that heat is still there. And some of that heat will still be there a year from August and two years from August and so forth and so on. You know, that's a runaway feedback effect. And, and there's no doubt that the North Pole will be ice-free within the next five or six years. Let's see. We'll do you, and then we'll get to you, sir. Uh, about a year ago, we had a problem with Oh, yeah. And if I understand his argument is that even accepting the IPCC projections, all this effort and money that will be spent in the next hundred years would only delay the, the, the CO2 rise by four or five years or something like that. I mean, is there, is there yeah, I'm, you know, I'm familiar with his arguments and his, I've written him and we've been brought in. I've never been able to debate him, and I've asked to do so, but the New Zealand government brought us in back-to-back. He spoke one day, I spoke the next day. I asked to go second. Um, You know, I mean, there's a certain logic there. Where I agree with him, if if we say, you know, God, look at the the one billion children that don't have access to clean drinking water, and they're at risk of dying in the next few months from dysentery, you know, should we put our money into a massive capital campaign to provide clean drinking water, or do we do something that as a incremental benefit 20 years out in terms of climate change, well, I want to save the children too, right? Um, I think he has gone a little bit too far because we, we need to do all of those things. And I think he, you know, he does not accept the Stern Report analysis that if we act now, it costs a small amount of money, and if we wait a few decades, it costs a massive amount of money that it has this almost untenable impact on the global economy. He uses different economic models, and most kind of mainstream economists disagree with the numbers he uses, right, to come up with his arguments. I'm not an economist. I've, I've been trying to learn what I can, but not, not at his level. And so, you know, my view is that he's an end member suggesting that 
if you do the cost-benefit analysis, we're better off addressing other challenges right now. And the more of the mainstream view would be there's a lot of challenges, and this is one that we need to start hitting on right away. Now, what, and he's never factored in the potential for economic growth in terms of the development of green technologies. I mean, he doesn't live in Silicon Valley. If you live here in the peninsula, you know, and you see what happens, and you think about, you know, there's a couple of startups now that are, you guys may know this already, but, you know, 10% of the carbon dioxide emissions come from the production of cement, right? So 10%. And so if we could figure out a way to make cement by a different method, and not release that CO2. It's like immediately cutting back 10% of our fossil fuel combustion. Well, it turns out it's not that hard to do. And so these startups are, you know, developing processes to create cement without releasing CO2. Now, that's the kind of thing that, that's going to bail us out and generate revenue or generate income for people here. And, and Bjorn doesn't, doesn't include that. But he's also tempered his rhetoric. His, his first book on the environment, The Skeptical Environmentalist, he said global warming doesn't exist, it's all natural variability. And he stopped saying that in the last five years. Can this be the last one? Okay, yeah. And I know there's other people that have questions, so I will stay and talk to you guys. But I think what we'll do, we'll take your question and then people are free to get up and go. And, uh, and I'll stick around and talk to you guys. I keep hearing about uh, geoengineering solutions where either Well, I, we absolutely we should be thinking about it because you know following that principle of having the broadest possible portfolio, right? Because we don't really know what's going to work yet, and there's a lot of smart people out there. You know, we we should think about some of the geoengineering schemes that have been proposed, and there'll be other ones that haven't yet been proposed. But I will say this: I mean, one classic example of a geoengineering scheme running its course was it affected two companies here in the Bay Area, Planktos and Climos. Planktos failed after acquiring very large investments, tens of millions of dollars, and they were, they were getting credits from these voluntary carbon offset markets. And their plan was to put iron in the ocean and, and have plankton growth stimulated by this vitamin. Iron acting as a vitamin would cause the plankton to grow more prolifically, and they would suck down carbon and then it would be out of the system. Well, it turns out it doesn't really work that way. They do suck it down, but then they die in a month or two, and it goes back up into the atmosphere. And so there was, there was a fundamental flaw. It's not necessarily the death knell for that overall process. There's one other company pursuing it, but invariably these things are much more complex and more costly um, than is initially supposed by the originators of the idea. But, you know... We really do have to to search out every possible mechanism to help us here. Not to mention the law of unintended consequences. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if you mess with ecosystems on an oceanic scale, you know, it will have other consequences for other organisms that live in the sea. So, and we don't understand how that works yet. So, all right. Thank you so much. I know a lot of you have to get back to work, so I wanted to at least bring it to a formal close so that um, you won't feel embarrassed 
walking out while he's speaking. And uh, also I wanted to mention that next month on Wednesday, November 12th, we're going to have Chip Conley here to discuss how the principles of human motivation can boost business success. Maybe in the land world of renewable energy technology. I don't know if we can make a connection there. But um, thank you all for coming and join me in thanking Professor Dunmar.